Hey, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of The Drip, the podcast where four academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics, all the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes or when we are each of us in our own homes because we are still trying to keep ourselves, our loved ones, and even people we don't know know or like uh, safe and healthy. <laughs> <laughs> we also want to send out our love, our support, and our gratitude to everyone who's been out there on the streets and who continue to be out there on the streets, especially Black folk, especially Black women who are risking their lives and demanding justice so that we can all live and breathe more freely. I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Uh, Crystal? I'm Crystal Moten. I am a museum professional who lives in Washington, D.C. Adriana? I'm Adriana Estel. I teach English and American Studies at Carleton College. And um, all I have to say is keep on tearing down the statues. Todd? I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach in the English Department at the University of St. Thomas, and I double down and agree on that. I don't care if it's a George Washington statue. Tear that one down too. <laughs> yes, tear it all down so we can rebuild better. Burn it down! Burn it down! <laughs> Thank you, Todd. <laughs> and there's an enthusiasm fist pumping from the rest of us so y'all can see. All right, so in this episode, we're going to discuss the first story in the Binti trilogy by Nendi Okorafor. A Nigerian-American author of what she calls African Futurism and African Jujuism for Children and Adults. She is the winner of lots of awards, including the Hugo, Nebula, World Fantasy, Locus, and Lodestar Awards. And her debut novel, Zara the Windseeker, won prestigious Wolo Soyinka Prize for Literature. Her next novel, Ikenga, will be in store soon in August 2020. And I just saw on her website that one of her books, Who Fears Death, is in development for a TV series at HBO. And we also know from Twitter that Binti also is going to be in development uh, through Hulu for a TV series. And obviously, there might be delays because of the pandemic, but we cannot wait to see that. Um, and of course, as always, spoiler alert before we dig in, just a reminder that when we discuss our books, we talk about everything. So as you know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective. So consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alerts. In other words, we are all about spoilers and not about summaries. No summary. No summaries. Not at all. So I think like last time, I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about sort of the genre of the book. Um, and I was, I was telling you all before we started recording, I think, like with poetry, I feel like sci-fi is normally a genre that sort of I find intimidating because there's like a lot of new worlds and new words and there's aliens and there's all these things that are happening. And I think I've had a hard time sometimes getting into it because it's hard. I like get lost in the details and I don't know what's happening. But I think for me, Binti was different because I think she herself is such a compelling character. And I feel like because it's kind of, you know, she's 16, I think, when she kind of leaves home and starts this journey, it's also kind of like a story of discovery for herself and about herself. So there's a lot of moments when she's kind of like, what's happening? And like, so there's like explanation. And I think it helped me kind of stay grounded and stay um, kind of in the story and about her. So just kind of curious about, you know, what genre we would even put this in. And obviously she calls it, um, or her writing as African futurism and African Jujuism. So just curious about how you thought about the genre and how maybe Binti fits into or breaks boundaries of the genres that we would fit this into. You want to go ahead, Adriana? No, no, no oh, you first, okay. Todd. Okay. 
Yeah, no, um, <clears throat> I um, actually teach a lot of, um, I teach a class called Afrofuturism or I have a couple of times. And one of the things about teaching that class is that that name is sort of like, um, uh, is insufficient now um, to really describe the, the work that, uh, and even when I started, like you would, there was this thing when um, Afrofuturism, which has been around for over 20 years really as a term, um, but when people started teaching in college classrooms, it wasn't just like, oh, these are books that people are writing right now. We would go back and we would look at, you know, something like The Comet by W.B. Du Bois, which is at the beginning of this of the 20th century, and try to look at how those um, works or whether it was poetry or drama or whatever had like this sort of um, uh, speculative nature to it, right? So this fits into that sort of broader category of work by writers from the Black diaspora that are speculative in nature. And you mentioned that she um, refers to it as African juju, African futurism or African Jujuism, mm -hmm. which she's basically rejected the, the label of Afrofuturist and has um, some really uh, entertaining and fascinating Twitter uh, uh, sort of feeds about that where she argues with, uh, with, with uh, her fans sometimes and like just people who wanna call her an Afrofuturist. Um, the other thing I wanna say really quick is, you know, one of the things about sci-fi, which is like a sort of related, like when people are talking about Afrofuturism, they often compare it to sci-fi or think of it as sort of subgenre or something like that. Um, I think sci-fi has a lot of problems. And, and actually this book, when it won um, the Nebula and the Hugo in um, 2015, I think if I'm remembering correctly, um, it caused a lot of consternation in the sci-fi world. And in oh. fact, it was kind of like a pushback from this group that I think they're called the sad puppies. And they're like, they're oh, basically, right. you remember that? Like these mm -hmm. white guys and um, who did it, who just thought like, this is not really science fiction. And like where they're, they were coming from is this sort of like masculinist sort of exclusionary notion of science fiction um, that is more like, you know, Frank Herbert or something like, which to, which was one of the first books that, like Dune was one of the first books that I read when I was a kid where I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Because it was like it, this whole world and all this new um, technology and it was like had specific rules and what is the gum jabbar and like who, all this stuff, right? <laughs> and if you didn't know it, it was a way of like uh, making insiders and outsiders, right? Like if right. you didn't know it, then you didn't know the book. You're not, you're not a real fan, blah, 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 blah. Um, which is different from the kind of work that, that she's doing. It's not this sort of exclusionary masculinist kind of speculative world that you build so that you keep people outside if they don't have the knowledge. And so I think that's really important to thinking about like the genre, that category that she's creating or constructing as an author. Yeah, no, and I think in that way, she actually owes a lot to Octavia Butler. Um, when I was reading this, I just taught Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis series last year. Um, and it has that same kind of um, uh, trajectory where you have a main character who, in that case, she's one of the only humans left alive and gets swept up by an alien ship and has to make decisions about how much to assimilate to those aliens in order to survive. Right, so it brings up a lot of questions about reproduction and consent um, and about how much you lose when you give over yourself uh, to another. And we see those questions here too, not quite as um, 
uh, bluntly, right? The, the issue doesn't come up around reproduction per se, but it does come up around um, Binti's role as a translator. Um, in some ways, in order to survive, she has to um, negotiate between the Medus and her past and uh, her future at the university. And, um, you know, we realize, you know, I think we're almost all the way through the, the novella when we realize that she, in fact, she gives up her hair, right? She doesn't realize she's giving it up. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like, it was her people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a huge, like, it's a huge symbolic loss. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, the novella, like, lets us know that there's also this possible game there, but it's fraught. Um, and so, yeah, it, it just reminded me so much of Butler's work um, where she sees this kind of a mutation and change as an inevitable process. Um, but then how do you actually um, keep connections with your past, with the people and the histories that are meaningful to you? I have a follow-up question, Todd. Um, could, you, could you talk a little bit more about uh, Nettie Okorafor's kind of critique of why she doesn't want to be framed as Afrofuturism? I think that, you know, my sense of it was that um, she, now, so there's something I would say. I think she doesn't think that it's, uh, she sees herself as being rooted as a Nigerian writer, uh, an African writer, right? And almost all of her work weaves into it some sense of sort of Nigerian um, traditional belief, um, magic, you know, um, all these sorts of things. So there, hence like the African Jujuism, right? Um, this book is a little bit, it's not so much like uh, specific to Nigeria, but it's specific right. to Africa, right? Like the, right. the Himba are a real group of people in uh, Namibia, I think. Mm -hmm. And so there's that connection. Um, I think though that Afrofuturism has almost always been a kind of um, African or black diaspora kind of genre, right? Because like some of the the like filmmaking and, and visual artists are out of Africa, not even just like, um, you know, first generation um, African immigrants in America or in Britain, but like in Nigeria, in, you know, West Africa and other um, other parts of Africa, South Africa, especially. Um, but I think she really just wanted to, to emphasize both the sort of magic and traditional culture and heritage of um, specifically Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And also, um, uh, I think to sort of re to reject, I think it's another way of sort of like putting something in between herself and like traditional sci-fi too. Mm -hmm. So it's like another sort of barrier in between that, I think so. Um, I guess going back to the point about, right, sort of becoming this like translator or this um, bridge or however we want to think about it. Like I was kind of thinking about that, right? I mean, you've sort of said like, you know, she like gave up her, her hair, but it was more that it was like taken from her, right? right? She didn't like necessarily consent to that, to like mm -hmm. the Medus like injecting her. So now instead of hair, she has the, whatever, the tentacles, I forget what the, the like, huh? Akuako. Akuako, right? So she has that. So I was kind of curious about that, right? It's just sort of like was this interesting moment where um, like she gives up the like the technology that was helping her like translate and they ask her to give that up. And she actually does that with consent, right? She's like, okay, like I'm going to make that and I'm going to potentially take away this thing that's going to keep me safe in order to kind of act as this bridge 
but then what happens is that they sort of um you know whatever sting her and like she kind of becomes part them so it's kind of curious about how we read that or what we think what we thought about that that's a tough one I mean (laughs) I've thought about that a lot you know maybe thinking around it and not really ever sort of being able to kind of put my finger on that moment because um I think that there's a way in which that can't be read as anything but a like a real violation Mm -hmm. um you know an act of violence um and I you know maybe you know obviously these uh this, this these people um the uh the Medus. The, yeah, the Medus. The Medus are a warring people and they are engaged in war. And like even the act that they commit before she's the last one on the ship, right? They right. kill everyone on the ship, right? They have, I think it's called the, the Great Wave is what they call it, right? And they just right. kill everyone. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And um, she's the only one who's left. So they're, quite, they're obviously not... Um, uh, they're not hesitant to use violence or to violate other people, especially right. in response to a violation that they feel like right. have happened to them, happened to them, yeah. you know, but I, you know, I go back to what you were saying, um, Anita, you know, about this kind of um, necessity for surrender in order to have like um, some kind of communion or connection between the two groups of people. Um, I, I always think, to me, I always think like the way that um, I'm. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm. Aqua. Uh, Aqua. Aqua. Sorry. The way that Aqua behaves when he when they first meet. I mean, he's one of the most violent ones. He's one of the most like you know. Let's kill everybody. He hates um, Binti. He wants to kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he beca- They become friends. And I'm always trying to think like, how does that happen? Um, and one of the things that I think is like, they're both young and I wonder if they're like their youth and curiosity of is part of what overcomes that. Um, and, well, and she uh, saves him, right? She uses her red clay right. to like save him. Right. Right. So, so, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that doesn't make up for, I mean, for this that is, violation. This is exactly right? why it reminds me of Xenogenesis though. To some degree, um, she has no choice, right? As Anita, you're pointing out, she doesn't even get asked. Right. You know, she basically trusts. At that point, she has to trust because there's no other route. Um, she's committed to trying to behave as a translator and as a mediator. Um, and so, with the when the stinger, you know, when she gets stung, she doesn't even know what's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. It's not until later that she discovers that it's altered her. Right. in a fundamental she didn't even know it was going to happen right she right didn't she know. didn't know it was going to happen and then she didn't know what it was going to do the consequences right? yeah mm-hmm. um and yet like if we look at the the way she talks about it after she's figured it out right so page 50 and 51 um and she uh, at the bottom of 50 she says i stood there in my strange body if I hadn't been deep in meditation, I would have screamed and screamed. I was so far from home. And so we get this first glimpse of, you know, this, um, and I think this is actually really common in YA, right? And in, um, in coming of age stories, this moment where the you that you were is gone and adolescence is like that, right? Mm-hmm. So is this a, um, 
You know, is it a narrative of lack of consent? Yes, but it's also a narrative of just a kind of inevitable growth of inevitable change in order to fit the new circumstances, the new environment. And then by the next page, she's making this interesting piece with, with it, right? Mm -hmm. It was said that a human tribal female from a distant blue planet saved the university from Medusa terrorists by sacrificing her blood and using her unique gift of mathematical harmony and ancestral magic. <clears throat> and I am always fascinated by the, the phrase sacrificing blood because there's this um, almost spiritual and kind of mythic quality to, to the way in which her story is now being told and the way she's being understood, which I might be taking it a step too far, but you know, sacrifice isn't about consent, right? It can't, I think, include consent. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sticking that out there. <laughs> I think you could consent to sacrifice, yeah. right? Doesn't it? And I feel like she did, right? Like, I feel like by saying that, she was going to like give up the Iran or whatever to, I feel like that was her sacrifice, right? Yeah. Cause she was giving up something that like, as far as she knew was like, what was protecting her from like, that was why she wasn't killed. Right. Mm -hmm. So to me, like that was her consenting to like sacrificing her own safety and sacrificing like her potential being. But I feel like the second part that they did to her was not right. actually like, right. like right. that was like their taking from her. And I feel like, I mean, I was get that that's like, like this giving. That's the thing. Both maybe, mm -hmm. but I feel like it was still that's wasn't consent, right? Even giving to somebody without yep. their consent is like still violating. Because that's, that's, that's about point of view too, right? Yeah. I mean, right. Whether, it, you, whether you gave me something is mm -hmm. point of view, right? Like, from a surgery and they're like, we sewed an extra foot <laughs> in your leg. <laughs> Thank you we so have, much. We have given you something special, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I feel like the part about being like thinking about adolescence, and I feel like that's true, right? Like this change and a lot of change happens to you and happens to your body that you don't like necessarily quote unquote consent to because it's just your body like changing. But it does make me think about given that she's like, you know, even within like the human world, right? She comes from a group that is um marginalized and that is right so she's himba so i'm kind of curious about like when we think about adolescence for like kids who are like not from the mainstream or not from right for, uh, in whatever society we're talking about like what are the ways in which they're forced to change right because of these like circumstances that they find themselves under where like or even the way people, that people see them too exactly right? uh, yeah. exactly so i feel yeah. like there's like maybe more of this change that's like forced upon some young people, right? And not other young people. So I'm kind of curious about for her as a himba, like where does that kind of fit into this whole thing? Well, I think that's actually absolutely part of this whole story, even before all of the, um, you know, people on the ship get killed. Um, that like the whole, uh, you know, journey from her small community to the space station or wherever, right? Like, so that she can get on the ship that will take her to the university. There's a lot of moments where she talks about how she will never be able to go home again, right. mm -hmm. how her community will not understand this. Right. Um, and, you know, when she's on the ship and cornered and, and hasn't had those conversations yet with the Medus, there are moments where she's like, you know, if only I could talk with home, right? Like, but, mm -hmm but that's impossible. And it wasn't impossible because of the technology, but right. because she recognizes that she is fundamentally altered yeah, she already. Talk to them like the astrolabe allows her to speak with her family yeah. if she yeah. wants to, but she, she knows that 
they won't accept her or she 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 suspects that or strongly believes that i guess Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. can i just like i um one of the reasons why i love this book and i think it's probably obvious because i think i've been talking about this book on the show for like a long time (laughs) this is one of my favorite 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 books um and uh one of the reasons i think i like it so much is because this is piggybacking on what you were just talking about adriana is that the way that it deals with that notion of transformation um, that come that can come from travel, uh, that can come from education, that can come from just sort of leaving home and, and that you're transformed in a way that you can't go back, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there, you know, for myself, my educational journey has done that to me in a lot of ways, you know, and, and I, I uh, so... I'm thinking about some of my students this past fall when they had to go back home in the middle of the semester and we were having this class and now they're speaking to me from their, from their home. And some of them were saying like, I don't know how to talk to my parents anymore um, because they have this certain point of view and I'm like moving through this, you know, arriving at other points of view and I don't know how to talk to them about it. I feel like I'm disconnected from them. And I very much um, understand that. And I felt that, you know, myself, um, maybe like the higher I went, the more degrees I got, you know, like (laughs) I'll never forget, like I go home to homecoming, you know, we have homecoming the first weekend of of August. And um, that's when I see most of my family. And uh, they'd be like, I I just just graduated, you know, with my PhD. And they'd be like, you sure I've been in school a long time, baby. You know, I'll be like, Mm-hmm. Well, I just graduated. In the I don't year. know about y'all. It took me so long to convince my mom that um, I had work during the summers. <laughs> that like a summer break was not what it was all about. Yeah, like they didn't really understand what it was that you were doing. And you, and you know, you couldn't you couldn't really say like, oh, I'm I'm getting this d- other degree. And well, you sure you've been doing it for twelve years. Like, when are they gonna <laughs> let you leave? You know, it's like I got. I'm gonna let you leave. <laughs> <laughs> and and like, there's just it, it can the distance can get even bigger, right? So for yeah. me, it was like coming from a rural community where people didn't like a lot of people didn't go to college. Uh, actually, very few went to college, and then certainly people didn't get PhDs. Like they didn't really know what that was. And and I also I had a professor when I was in in, in school. His name was Chris Okonkwo. And he was from Nigeria. And he said, whenever he would go home to Nigeria, he literally could not explain to his parents, like his family at his tribe, like what he did mm-hmm. and what he was doing. Like in their, in their um, language. Yeah. Like they yeah. couldn't understand it. They didn't have any like reference for it. And they yeah. would just be like, oh, he's in America. Mm-hmm. And that was like the extent of their, their knowledge. And I think like there's, there's an mm-hmm. element of that in this novel that's really, um, familiar to me even though it you know it takes the it manifests itself in like your hair turning into tentacles but she lost i mean the hair is so important right like the hair is woven in this mathematical formula i I want to talk more about that can we Um, talk more about this on page 54 oh can i also just read a passage that gets at sort of the distance thing that todd Mm -hmm. was just talking about okay and And i think maybe um maybe question about like there's that distance, but also for her, it's like gendered, right? Um, so she says, and this is page three, I was 16 years old and had never been out beyond my city, let alone near a launch station. I was by myself and I had just left my family. My prospects of marriage had been 100% and now they would be zero. 
No man wanted a woman who had run away. However, beyond my prospects of normal life being ruined, I had scored so high on the planetary exams in mathematics that the UMSA University had not only admitted me, but promised to pay for whatever I needed in order to attend. No matter what choice I made, I was never going to have a normal life, really. Exactly. Yeah. And then just to get back to these braids and why they matter so much, like Todd's bringing up on page 54, we learn about them before because the boy that she's kind of falling in love with on the ship notices that they're braided in a mathematical um, um, pattern. So on page 54, she says, there were 10 of them and I could no longer braid them into my family's code pattern as I had done with my own hair. So she's got these, you know, the Okuoko now, and she's making peace with them, but like it viscerally materially separates her from her family history. Mm-hmm. It's not something you can hide either if you go back to see them. Right. They will see that, right? Mm-hmm. And it will set you apart. Yeah. I'm thinking about kind of the, our earlier conversation about consent and, th- and connecting it to kind of being in this place where you are, you know, you believe you're leaving to go learn and expand yourself and to grow, but you're also receiving in some ways things that you didn't even know you needed to say yes or no to because mm. it's up with the, with the territory. And so yeah. I think about, you know, the moments where she is negotiating with the Medusa about like what she can do to help bring peace and she's like well i can do these things not really understanding that they're understanding something different about what she's saying she could do and as a result that impacts you know what she actually consented to and so i think i think when and then to bring that back to kind of like these you know educational situations that you know i find myself in former students find themselves in your students find themselves in you know, you get to these usually predominantly white institutions and you're believing, okay, I am, you know, buying into this contract um, because I'm believing I'm going to get something out of it, mm-hmm. but you get quite, you get more than what you bargained for. <laughs> yes. Um, it comes with you having to, as you all have been saying, kind of redefine and rethink how you relate to the very people you thought going into this new place was gonna somehow help or impact mm-hmm. and then you realize that hmm that's not what's gonna happen <laughs> or it may happen um in a way you didn't expect it it may come with pain um mm-hmm. or sorrow that you did not you had not fully accounted for and yeah. I, right. seeing, you know we're seeing all of that in, in well this. i mean and who and, thinks when you go off to school <laughs> that it could be uh, an experience where you're um, where you have pain right. and sorrow and mourning mm-hmm. um, because the way that the popular narrative of it is like this is going to give you everything and it's going to be this thing that we celebrate at the end right. and you right. ride off into the sunset with your right. you know paper underneath your arm and the world is open to you and it's like I think you know not even aside from just like what's going to happen to you while you're there, especially at, like you said, at predominantly white institutions, but also like I was, um, we're, we're in the process of um, doing this mural at St. Thomas with juxtaposition arts. And they asked us like, you come up with some questions or some like statements or something that can help us to think about what this um, mural might look like. And somebody um, in our group was like, let's ask people the question, what is it? 
about themselves that they cannot show at St. Thomas? Mm. What is it about themselves that they had to leave behind to be here? And like, that's exactly what Binti is going through, right? And maybe people think that's a not a common experience. I think it's like a super common experience at university, especially mm. for students of color, because they have to leave stuff behind yep. that doesn't fit into you know, the environment or they're going to be seen in a certain way. Right. Right. But I think what's like, I like she complicates the narrative because like, you know, when she's in the ship before everybody gets killed, like, Mm -hmm. it's also like a, like a place where she feels like she fits in because Mm -hmm. she's with people who love math and who do like the kind of math that she loves. So this is like page nine and 10. Mm -hmm. And so she says, only Olo and Remy were in my group. Everyone else I met in the dining area or the learning room where various lectures were held by professors on board the ship. They were all girls who grew up in sprawling houses, who had never walked through the desert, who had never stepped on a snake and dry grass. They were girls who could not stand the rays of Earth's sun unless it was shining through a tinted window. Yet, they were the girls who knew what I meant when I spoke of treeing. We sat in my room because um, it was the emptiest and challenged each other to look at the stars and imagine the most complex equation and then split it in half and then half again and again. When you do mathematics fractions, fractals long enough, you kick yourself into treeing just enough to get lost in the shallows of the mathematical sea, right? So there was like this way in which it was her people in this like mm-hmm. different way, right? Because there was maybe, and maybe there was like a way in which she felt like she didn't fit necessarily into like home and where she mm-hmm. was as a himba. And then she like comes to this place where in a lot of ways she doesn't fit, right? She's the only himba and everyone else is kush. But it's like, she still has this like, like interest and this like ability and this like magic that she shares with these other people who she doesn't share a lot of other things with. I think this is what what's actually super brilliant and beautiful about this novella that it gives us in those first 10 pages, um, you know, what's the kind of more uh, um, like traditional or paradigmatic story that we have of, you know, the person from my minoritized community who leaves in order to go to college. And we can see it, right? Like that, that's her story. She's leaving to go to university. And she does, she meets people who are super unlike her, but that they all, you know, like love learning and they love math and it's working. Um, and then it like says, oh no, that's not the story we're telling. <laughs> right. Like the, the community that she has to actually learn how to live with and figure out is so alien that they don't even speak the same language, that there's nothing at first that we have in common. They don't even and have the same those, bodies yet. Right, not the same bodies, not the same way of breathing, the whole like, you know, exhaling the gases. So it, the, rest, the, not, the rest of the novella is basically like, how do you actually build a sense of not community, I think that's going too far, but cooperation, common mm-hmm. goals, um, respect, mm-hmm. when you can't even understand the person, the do we, entity. Do we introduce persons? Yeah, entity, <laughs> creature in front of you, right? Creature. So how do we, and I think that's so also why Butler keeps coming to my mind, right? Because Butler's novella n- novels are so much about like, how, what is it about um, the way we talk about humanity and humanizing that is actually deeply dehumanizing at this larger level, mm. right? That in fact kind of expects and um, encourages us to create aliens and monsters in mm. order to like figure out what is human. Mm. Mm. Wow. That's deep. That is. Thank you. Thank wow. you. <laughs> <laughs> that is really, really deep. I love that. 
I love that. And uh, I mean, I feel like it's, um, and it's like a more complex world that she's entering because like the university she goes to is like a all, I don't know, all universe, university. Yes, How yes. do we even like talk about it? Because <laughs> yes, it's, it it's, it's not just, it's not just the huge. <laughs> yeah, it's the most Umza. prestigious university in the universe. In right, because like when their... she goes there and she's like facing the council, they're not all human, right? They're yeah. also like. Um... It's like those scenes in Star Wars, you know, yes. like where the council and you got like all the people from the different planets. It's just like that, right? Yes. <laughs> so you got someone going, like... burp, burp, burp. <laughs> That sort of stuff. They have a universal translator. Yeah. Do they all mm-hmm. speak human? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, they don't. They don't even get at that translation in the. Yeah, that's what I was kind of wondering about that. I was like, do they all speak? Because um, she speaks yeah. also like a. There's like different human languages, obviously, as yeah. well, right? Because mm-hmm. like there's, but she speaks, I assume, Kush. Uh, <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't remember. And so I was like, there's like a lot of translating happening across like a lot of different kinds of. Um, well, she's like, she's a harmonizer, which, right. which must, that must be a part of it too, right? Like this oh, ability so maybe to she communicate like okay. yeah, across lines and to create harmony in, you know, mathematical chaos and all that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. which I think, you know, again, I just, um, she's such an interesting character. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, uh, I mean, you just think about that, like nobody in her family, nobody in her village, nobody wants her to go. And she walks across the desert, gets on a shrimp, <laughs> on a shrimp ship, <laughs> and takes off across the universe. Oh, yes. Let's talk about this technology yeah. right, and the way that it's described. Because, um, so, you know, you just called it a shrimp ship, which I think Crystal brought up uh, before we started recording. Mm-hmm. And one of the fascinating things about the technology in here is that it's not, and I think this gets to, like, Anita, your question about science fiction, right? Mm-hmm. This is not daunting, like computer technology that in, feels like really alienating in a kind of like, oh, that's just, you know, matter and wires. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really life filled. Mm-hmm. And Crystal, you had a thought about fish, ship as well, fish. Yeah, I was, and I can't tell you all what page this is on because I'm reading from a device that's created by a company I'm not going to name. <laughs> <laughs> But the way um, the ship is described, I'll just read from it. It says, the ship was a magnificent piece of living technology. Third fish, which is the name of the fish, was a Miri 12, a type of ship closely related to a shrimp. Um, Miri 12s <laughs> were stable, calm creatures with natural exoskeletons that, that could withstand the harshness of space. They were genetically enhanced to grow three breathing chambers within their bodies. Um, And so just like even thinking about the way that the technology is described, it's described as living. Um, And and that, the the fact that the ship is described in this way, and when I think about technology being so kind of, I mean, I think of technology in terms of like aluminum and Mm -hmm. kind of sharp lines and Mm -hmm. angles. Um, But this is the opposite of what I think of when I think of kind of technology, right? It's technology that has curves, that um, is soft, um, that supports kind of growth that it, that's, that's mm-hmm. nature and natural. Um, and so it's just such a different way um, to think about technology. And I think about all of that then holding 
this story, but then also Binti. Mm -hmm. And so what does it mean to be traveling through space and then also in this story and that type of vessel, right? Yes. Um, and that's just such a different way for me um, to think about like science and then like sci-fi and technology. And so I just found that so kind of compelling. Um, and it reminded me of some work that Alexis Gums is doing in terms of connecting kind of black feminism with marine mammals mm -hmm. and kind of thinking about the lessons we can learn when we think about marine mammals. And so she has this book coming out called Undrowned. It's coming out in um, November, but it's kind of thinking about um, marine mammals and what we can learn from them as queer, fierce, protective, and complex, shaped by conflict, but still um, kind of struggling to survive and they do survive. And so I've just been thinking about like, what role kind of is this idea of the fish, you know, transporting all of this through dimensions, through space, um, like what role that also was playing um, in the story and what you all thought about that too. And I think you'd also said that, right? I mean, it's like fish we think of as like creatures of the ocean, but obviously this is like in the right. space. So I was kind of curious about what you were like thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just that, like that this is, you know, a, you know, a fish in space and thinking about like, how to how do we actually physically travel through space and me also i mean there's so many thoughts going on but thinking about the recent kind of uh space shuttle launch and the tremendous amount of power it took to get the to get the actual space shuttle into space like all of those rockets and then once they are launched into space it's just almost like floating right mm -hmm. so it's like thinking about the power that takes um with actually what it means to actually be in space coupled with a fish that is moving through all of that, it's just blowing my mind. And it's just like really imaginative, you know? Yes. I just, um, I, you know, I don't know, is she, um, Okafor thanks her daughter in the, mm -hmm. in the uh, acknowledgements, um, right. you know, for giving her some of these ideas. And, yes. and I think there's a kind of like whimsicalness about mm -hmm. the technology that, yeah. and, book that is you know very very different from that kind of like I was talking about before that mm -hmm. technology that seems off-putting or sort of exclusionary right. and I was thinking about you know this the Edan that she has like this little thing that protects her at first from um from the uh from the uh the Medusa. Uh, Medusa. thank you guys <laughs> for the protection from the Medusa. but like she doesn't it's it's an ancient old ancient piece of technology that she found in the desert buried <laughs> And she dug it up and nobody knows what it does. It has some, you know, some function, but she doesn't understand what the function is until she becomes like a part of it. Like until she connects with it in some sort of like not technical way, like she doesn't put her finger into a slot or something like that. She just <laughs> connects with it in some way. Sorry, but I don't know what. They have looks on their face right like, now. Get electrocuted or something. <laughs> put her finger in the socket. Um, but I, I think, um, I think what 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 you know, another thing that just makes me so um, interested in this is that you know people of the Black diaspora and, and African Americans in particular have been thought of as being primitive for mm -hmm. that like that has stuck to us I think um, um, you know one of the uh, I'm gonna forget uh, the person's name because I. I can't remember anything because I had a brain injury, <laughs> but, um, Oh yeah. Blame it on that. <laughs> <laughs> I can still blame it on that. Um, 
but um, but there, there's this phrase that that black people are the anti-avatars of technology, mm-hmm. um, and and this book turns that all on its head. You have technology in it that pre-exists these people in this time. It's so it's ancient, but it's super powerful. Mm-hmm. The main character, who's a, a a black African woman, is so makes the most amazing um, right. astrolabes in the galaxy that people seek her out. Like, and this right. astrolabe is basically like a smartphone you know (laughs) i mean and it can do anything you know and so all this stuff they're normal a part of their of their culture not that it like they just found or something it's always been there right so in in a way it's even better than like black panther because black panther it comes out of the sky on Mm a uh, on a um asteroid or something like that right but they they had it before right yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you should read the rest of the trilogy around that. But yes, Adriana. <laughs> so, I, um, Todd, you've taken us in a slightly different direction than I was going, but I think that's really fascinating to think about how this is telling a really different story about um, African Black technology. Yeah. I was also thinking, though, that it's like the technology has a life of its own, right? And we see that very like viscerally with both the. Um, the, sh- the shrimp fish, uh, the shrimp ship. Oh my shrimp God, that's hard to say. <laughs> but also with the Medusa's ship mm. um, and then the Edon, right? Like, so all of these, these are not things that are possessed or owned in the same way, I think. Like they mm. seem like they also have some agency of their own. And we don't see that agency, you know, like a lot during the, the novella, but we get the sense that they aren't just there to take you know, um, human beings or, you know, any, but any species kind of like work for it, right? They're not just there to, to be owned and commodified. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was going to go to this uh, Medusa ship because it's also living, right? Um, I was on page 35. Their ships stank. I was sure of it, even if I couldn't smell it through my breather. I could barely concentrate on the spongy blue surface beneath my bare feet or the cool gases Okwu promised would not harm my flesh, even though I could not breathe it, mm-hmm. on the Medusa or the Medusa who were floating all over, right? The room was so enormous, it was huge. Um, and it's, it's this green ship, again, mm-hmm. right? Where everything's pulsing and there's gases everywhere. Um, and what's fascinating is that she's as frightened Right, and she she's reacting viscerally to it, even if she can't smell it. Mm-hmm. So that she's carrying, you know, she's this is at the beginning when she still hasn't quite worked through um, who the Medusa are and how to work with them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, and I think kind of this notion of like, you know, it's not just like cult technology where we're sticking our hands into something or whatever, but it's this idea that we're like connecting to it. Actually, actually, um, is interesting to me because I think in the field of like computer science, right, that there's also this like research that talks about how, and again, this is like generalization, but that there are these like gender differences and like how people like think about technology, right? So when like in intro computer science classes, like depending on how you teach them, right, there are particular ways in which like young women like think about technology in terms of like it being about human connection and it being about for like human betterment, right? Rather than just like this technical skills of like being able to code, being able to like know the latest like computer language. And I think it also is kind of this interesting, very like gendered and I think maybe even feminist way of like thinking about technology that it's about, right? Not just like, oh, cool. Like I found this thing, but it's like, oh, cool. I found this thing and it actually lets me connect to, right? This like alien race and this like, idea of like what do we do with technology and how do we like work with technology and how do we think of technology i guess in this case as having its own 
myself. Oh, no. uh, oh my God, you just like crystallized it for me. Did okay. you get on crystal? <laughs> um, oh my god sorry um that like this is not um except for the medus right at the beginning we don't see and even then it's it's not their technology that's militaristic it's their very own bodies right mm -hmm. um none of the technology here is military technology um, which in our world, of course, like most of our technology, even, you know, things like the smartphone and the computers were developed initially, you know, for, for um, military. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, well, at the, in the place where there is military, militaristic technology is at the university. Right. Mm -hmm. It says mm -hmm. to them, you guys can't go in the way you're trying to do that because they have all the weapons in the world and they'll right. destroy you. Yes. Um, and in fact, there's like a part of the university where those weapons are being developed. But am I, am I misremembering? Because I think, no, I think after things, yeah. after they, everything goes down, they kind of like sort of scale down that part of the university and ramp up another, other parts, which are less about war. Right. I think, if mm -hmm. I'm, I, I don't know if I'm misremembering that or. Well, I think, um, so let's see. So this is 51 and there's, she's talking about, um, we're in one of the weapons, weapon city libraries, staring at the empty chamber where the chief stinger had been kept. Uh, weapon city was packed with activity. Wait, where's there stuff about? Um, yeah. So basically it's like they're inventing, testing and destroying, um, sort of weapons, but I do, um, this is sort of slightly tangent, but I did think about it. I, was, I thought it was interesting that like the reason why they decide to give the stinger back to the, chief is because they actually have this whole thing about consent right that mm -hmm. like actually by not asking the chief whether they could take it or by taking it by right. force mm -hmm. like yes. it was actually like a violation of like maybe they're like you know equivalent of like irb right <laughs> like, they're equivalent of, like <laughs> yeah. their ethics board or whatever it is so i thought that was IR actually interesting. irb is tough too they'll just <laughs> <laughs> so i thought that was like interesting that there is this concept of consent which funnily enough, the Medusa had sort of violated and like what they did to Binti, but they actually get their stuff back and like pieces prevailed because mm -hmm. she still argues for why they should get it back and because it was taken without consent. Um, so I thought that was kind of just interesting. And she's but. arguing for like the, um, what is the word that I am looking for? The reintegration of the chief's body when her own body has been like yeah. violated in a sense. And I mean, mm -hmm. it hasn't been torn apart or something but it's been transformed against her will like just right. to add on to what you're saying right. you guys can i we haven't talked about the uh, uh ojita the the, the clay the clay. we haven't yeah. talked about that at all we have to really talk about that i think yeah. because that's oh because really yeah earlier i was gonna um ask if we could talk about rituals mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. because of the oh oh my god ojize how should we pronounce it we need to make a decision what did I, you say todd ojize Ojise, sure. Ojise, okay. But I'm not saying that's right. Apologies <laughs> if we're totally saying it wrong. So. Yes. yes, seriously. Very much. Um, because um, you know, of course, it um, is at first simply a part of a home ritual, right? It's part of the Himba's way of uh, moving in the world. They have this clay and they put it on their bodies. And when the women go out without the clay, they are seen as perceived as naked. Right, so she, um, Binti is really accustomed to always having it, um, and she's brought a little pot of it along with her on the trip. Mm -hmm. And then we discover, she discovers that it actually has healing power um, right. for the Medusa. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then she uses it all, right, like in this, you know, set of healing rituals that they need. Um, basically kind of like, you know, doing this last kind of like, I don't know if I'll find this again. Um, but that's okay. I will just give it up 
for you know your integrity basically um yep. and then we get this last section where we do find her you know like both washing it off and then finding new clay and really hoping it works so i was curious about how you guys read that section and like how you moved through it because i i found it a really powerful section actually from the get-go yeah and i, I think oh go ahead Tom. no go ahead i was just gonna read so i think like on page five right so she's talking about how um the kush people like see um would you say um okay so this is like part five and she's like standing in line and this was like very um like now earth right like mm -hmm. something that would happen and so she says as i stood in line for boarding security i felt a tug at my hair i turned around and met the eyes of a group of kush women they were all staring at me everyone behind me was staring at me the woman who had tugged my plate was looking at her uh fingers and rubbing them together frowning her tips were orange red with my ojitsu uh, she sniffed them. It smells like jasmine flowers, she said to the woman on her left, surprised. Not shit, one woman said. I hear it smells like shit because it is shit. No, definitely jasmine flowers. It is thick like shit, though. Is her hair even real? Another woman asked the woman rubbing her hair. I don't know. These dirt bathers are filthy people, the first woman muttered. Um, yeah, anyway, so I also just kind of thought about, like, Right. And part of like why they use that is because like they live in a place where there isn't a lot of water, which was actually kind of something I was thinking about in terms of like the ocean thing too, Crystal, just in terms of like water and ocean and like. The Ojitsu you know. like is a kind of way of cleaning. Yeah. Right. It's a way of protecting yeah. your skin and all that kind of stuff. And um, so, and it also, as uh, Adriana was say, saying, the application of it is like a ritual. And um, I, I think that so two things. First, there's a scene almost exactly like that in um, another one of um, her books. She did a, um, a, a graphic novel called um, LaGuardia, which is really, really interesting. Oh. And um, in that, in that uh, book, in that uh, uh, graphic novel, there are aliens who come to, they come to Nigeria first and then they, they have to, they're immigrating to the United States. And so LaGuardia Airport is like the place where they come into the United States. And it's actually really good, really good. But there's a scene that's exactly like that, except for um, the main character of that book, whose name, I think her name is Future. Um, she is coming from um, Nigeria into the United States. And there's a white woman who says those very same things mm -hmm. about her. Um, but I think, you know, like, we all can sort of like, uh, uh, we're all familiar with that kind of moment. Um, we've probably have all seen or had something like that happen. Um, but the Ojitsu to me, it's like so interesting because I think there's a moment early in the book where she recognizes that it's both her inheritance, it's both like an integral part of who she is, but there's also a kind of oppressive dimension of it because it, women wear it, right? And right. women are not to be seen without it. And there's, isn't there a scene where like she and some of her friends yeah. um, bathe and oh, clean right. it off and they're yeah, like, yeah. They, for a second they feel free mm -hmm. and then they're like uh, embarrassed and horrified, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And then yeah. she does that at the end where she, she's on Umza and she cleans off her body and then she applies the new Otsitsa uh, <laughs> that she's made with the, the clay from that planet. Yeah. And the real test is, will it all still it heal? and it mm -hmm. does right so the so we have this message again about both what you leave behind and what you take with you and what you discover and that it's not the material all the time 
that contain mm -hmm. that's the value that's the magic yeah. it's within the culture it's what you can take with you which is the belief in the magic right right yeah mm. yeah, I just, uh, yeah. Oh, think about the think about that the oat jizay was just shea butter i mean that's shea butter is not red <laughs> You guys, you remember that poem from Eve yes. Ewing about, oh, yeah. about yes. where the women, the mother is anointing the child, mm -hmm. yeah. and it's like this sort of like protected, yeah, the, it's right. very similar stuff, right? Um, so I think we're trying to wrap up. So, um, and I think. Um, I know not everybody in the group has necessarily read the full book and I'm sort of mostly with her, but I would definitely give it a try and I definitely keep reading because we find out all kinds of things about the Adan and like where it comes from. And then also just like the mm, multiple heritages that Binti has, I'll say. Uh, so I'm trying not to give away too many spoilers, even though we're on the All Spoils Collective, but apparently the spoilers haven't all read it. So I don't want to spoil it. For I've read it, but I don't, I don't remember it all. I mean, oh, okay. okay. I love the book so much that I like, I, this is the kind of reader. I'll, <laughs> I'll just like rifle through it. I'm like, ah, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be like, what, what, what did you just read? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. So or, I just, I guess I remember. Because yeah. <laughs> so. I've also read the rest of them and don't remember them. <laughs> so I, the my spoilers, whoever read it, that the third one is read not it. as good as <laughs> the other one. My memory is that the third one is not as, I didn't like the third one as good okay. as I like the first two. That's I think it's like an interesting, um, like I think she's just like this notion of her being a bridge actually works out in these like multiple like complex ways rather than mm -hmm. just the Medusa and her and then the Kush. So mm -hmm. I would say like, I find that kind of- Can I go back and reread it? There you go. And if you haven't read it at all, like some people uh, read it again. I'll read it for the first time. <laughs> some people. <laughs> wow, I feel all very right. Yeah, but Let's... have you read the Exogenesis series? No, I have huh? not. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough, oh, thank fair you. Enough. Thank you, Todd. <laughs> I got all you, right. So we're gonna go around and talk about what we're currently reading, watching, listening, eating, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Just something you want to recommend <laughs> to folks. Uh, Adriana, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, so I am starting to think about fall term classes. I know. Uh, um, and it turns out I might have a chance to do something that I'm starting to think about um, as a kind of Latinx literature, Latinx voices uh, since 2016. Oh. Um, I'm thinking of kind of like a mostly probably memoir. There's a lot of amazing memoirs that have been coming out. Um, Miriam Gurva, uh, who rocketed into Twitter fame because she had an excellent critique of American dirt, mm. yes. um, has a, a memoir called Mean. And it is just like she is on Twitter, in fact, it's really direct and her voice is crystalline but also like fragile like it's um it's a hard memoir to read there's um sexual assault there's you know racism uh there's growing up um but it's really well done and then the other thing that is like on the easy side of things that i've been watching is uh love victor it is a uh adorable totally anodyne, non-harmful kind of Love, Simon follow-up uh, that follows a young, thinks he's queer, but maybe not Latino kid. He's Colombian American. Um, and he's basically like just trying to figure out, yeah, do I like guys? Um, mm. And if I do, will my religious Latino parents be okay with it? Mm. And I think I found that on 
Hulu. Uh, I am currently in the middle. We talked about this before we started. I'm currently in the middle of Zora Neale Hurston's collection, hitting a straight lick with a crooked stick. I had to actually look at that because I can't remember that title. Um, so I'm about halfway through that and I'm really liking it. Um, I uh, want to uh, put the, give a shout out to the show, The Great, which is also on Hulu, Ooh. which is sort of about the rise of Catherine the Great in um, Russia. And it's like, it's a weird genre of like mix of comedy, um, sort of like drama, craziness, whatever. And it, even the first few episodes, I was sort of like, oh, I don't know if I'm into this. We, you know, Lucia and I were watching it together. I was like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But like the last three episodes, I was just like, oh my God. And then when it ended, I was like, oh my God. So I highly recommend it. <laughs> And then those are two different things. Right? <laughs> and um, I have, uh, I think the next thing I'm going to read is uh, Space is the Place by John Zwed, which is a, a biography of Sun Ra. And so I just got it. They mm. just came out with a paperback um, version. It's, you know, it's a pretty old book, but they just came out with a paperback version. And because I was teaching Afrofuturism mm -hmm. and for other reasons, I was obsessed with Sun Ra over the last few months. So got to read yeah. this. All right. Thank you. Crystal. Yeah, I um, am watching uh, Watchmen, which originally came out. Yeah, so good, so good. But now um, I'm watching it through a special because it's Juneteenth weekend. Um, you can watch it for free on HBO. Um, so by the time you all probably hear this podcast, it probably won't be free anymore. But Watchmen. <laughs> What I'm you watching. could easily sit down like there's 10 episodes right you could yeah. do it in two days easy not, <laughs> not even a problem is get that little free week from hbo that's true right there you go mm -hmm. there you just go. watch it and then let them know you're going yeah. and yeah. then you know while you're watching watchmen you can watch insecure so yeah oh my gosh this, this <laughs> last season oh i haven't, I haven't seen, seen it. it i haven't seen it oh, no spoilers for once um, no spoilers on insecure <laughs> So, okay. Thanks, Crystal. Um, so I'm going to give a shout out to a book that I know we've mentioned on the podcast before, because that's how I learned about it. I think Crystal mentioned it, but it's Thick by Tressie Macmillan Cottom, which is, um, she's a sociologist. And so she kind of uses like a lot of personal experiences to kind of illuminate social reality. And it's like really brilliant. And I was really excited because I had just like gotten the book and I was like planning on reading it. And she had announced that, you know, she's moving to University of North Carolina and the UNC Black Caucus was hosting a book discussion about the book. And because it's Zoom, because it's the pandemic, I like joined in um, and there's like one other person not at UNC. So it's like the two of us uh, and they were so sweet and so welcoming. But the best part was that the author came on and it was so exciting and she was so great. And I feel like we made this like total connection about she had this like brilliant sort of insight about you know what it means to be a child of um, an immigrant or a migrant and that in like moving your parents are basically creating conditions under which you are not going to understand their life right because it's like they're basically kind of moving this um so anyway so it was like really great and i um had like total like fangirl freak out moment and it was great so shout out to the unc black it, caucus <laughs> we can't stop there because in your fangirl moment yeah. You I actually tweeted, wrote something on Twitter. <laughs> you tweeted at Tressie, which I did. Really happens, and then guess what happened? Everybody here fly back <laughs> and sent me virtual hugs. So yes, Aww, <laughs> it was a whole massive. moment. That's massive. <laughs> uh, but also, speaking of things we're watching, I just finished watching uh, the second season of Pose, 
which, um, you know, like the first, like the first episode, and it's just hit, I think, very differently also because of COVID, because they're talking about the AIDS epidemic. Mm. And like the scene is about like these unmarked graves, basically, um, and sort of, you know, so it was just, um, so my friend and I were like watching the first episode, like through text together. And I think we were just like, whoa, <laughs> like, I think we just weren't, you know, it's impactful, like even within the time period of what it's talking about. But I think just like in this moment, it felt even more impactful and even more just like, you know, as my friend put it, it the season two has all the feels. Uh, so, you know, check it out if that's one of the shows that you want to watch. Um, check it out, wear masks. Go yeah, wear masks. check it out, wear masks, be careful out there and all of that. Um, and just our next book is going to be The Gilda Stories by Jill Gomez, which we're all excited about reading and sort of talking about. So, and Todd keeps telling us that it's long. So just, you know, as soon as you hear this podcast, start reading it. So you'll be ready for our next episode. Yeah, it's not and like Binti. I mean, it's not like Binti, right? you will want to, I mean, I, I'm sort of going out on a limb with this because I'm not sure, but I think that you will really like it. I love it. I it 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 starts a little bit. You got to figure out what the hell's going on at first, (laughs) and then you're like, oh, oh. Hopefully, I'll get to them. I'm a little worried that I'll still be I'll come and I'll be like, um. So what was happening? (laughs) I hope I hope it's a pleasant experience for you. I would hate to. Thank you, Todd. As long as these aren't Anne Rice vampires. (laughs) No, no, they're not like that. They're not. They're like in the Black Arts Movement. They're like they're like in all these different places in. Black history. It's like really cool. Cool. We're excited. And as always, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, basically all the things where you can find podcasts. And we hope that you're staying everywhere. Everywhere. We're everywhere. We hope that you're staying safe and healthy and big virtual hugs and down with all the statues and up with all the people. All right. Thank you all. See ya. Black kids matter. Black kids matter. Black kids matter. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to another brand new episode of The Drip recorded in the still healing Twin Cities, Northfield, and Washington, D.C. The Drip is written, produced, and directed by the All Spoilers Collective, which is Anita, Adriana, Crystal, and me. Bash the Dog is our mascot, and our music is by Lord Jordan X of Kansas City, Missouri. We'll be back in July to talk about Jewel Gomez's black feminist lesbian vampire classic, The Gilda Stories. And I'll leave you with some wise words from a hero of mine, Miss Flonzie Brown Wright of Jackson, Mississippi. Movements may change, but our commitments stay the same. Until next time, be safe out there and take care of each other.